I mean, how can you exchange apples and oranges? There has to be an underlying principle. Now, <laughs> in the case of apples and oranges, all I can say is that this is the preferences of individuals. Some individual prefers apples to oranges, some the other way around. And then you have to count heads, how many prefer, and then the price comes about. But here, there is something very basic underlying uh, fact here. And the fact is, and you cannot much deviate from this, is that the basis of uh, the exchange of income for wealth and wealth for income is the fact that income can be capitalized at a more or less rigid rate uh, using that formula through this example is that 5% uh, $50 per year capitalizes to $1,000 in counted as wealth. This is very, very important because then there is a guiding principle here which underlies the exchange. Without that, they would be lost. But that had to be discovered and it was discovered, well, through a fairly long time a couple hundred years, because this was roughly between 12, uh, the 1200s and, I would say, the 12th century and the 16th century. This was the only way to put your, uh, to make your exchange in fact. Find their end charge and then you can make the exchange. And then people looked at that after 100, 200 years of experience and said, gee, there's something interesting here. It's always the same formula, that income can be capitalized, and that's the basis. So it's not haphazard. There is a, a, a law behind, and you can call it the law of capitalization of income. <clears throat> but this is what happens in all cases. Yes. Now, I'm going to uh, review an article uh, written by Israel Kuzner. Do you know how to spell his name? Okay. I guess in Germany they would say Kirzner, but uh, in, he lives in America. No, no that's right, sorry. Kuzner, they pronounce it in, in uh, America. He, he was a professor, he retired now. Was, Professor of Economics at NYU, New York University, and he was a prominent member of the uh, Austrian uh, economists 
he got through somehow and slipped in, but he didn't really belong to the <laughs> conventional group of economics. It had to be Keynesian. He was definitely not a Keynesian. He was an Austrian economist with some uh, special uh, 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 what, how shall I say, uh, special uh, ideas of his own, which not all other Austrian economists share. Uh, and it all, all had to do with entrepreneurship and uh, uh, he came into this question of interest, studying interest, well, because he was looking at the business point of view, how entrepreneurs take money, invest it and get a yield, get a, a profit and so on. And this is very helpful. He had a school of his own. And then he picked on this problem. He did not, he wasn't the first one who talked about this, but uh, a number of economists before him were interested in the question, what they just broadly referred to as paradox of interest. Paradox of interest. And he contributed this paper to the paradox of interest without really solving the paradox. So I'm going to state this paradox now and give the paradox my own analysis which I think it's my complete satisfaction. Why they thought there was a paradox? Of course, in nature there is no paradox. It's either this way or that way. So, I'm quoting from Kuzner's paper. If you want the particulars of where you find this paper, I I have a bibliography. If it's not here, I can provide it. So this is a quotation from Kuzner. Much, perhaps all, will turn out to depend on the way in which the interest problem is formulated. For present purposes, we adopt a modern formulation of the problem, but wish to emphasize that this formulation is very similar in spirit and character to classic formulations going back to Schumpeter and Böhm Bauwerk. Both, no, uh, Schumpeter was Austrian, but both were Austrian, sorry, yeah, Austrians. The modern for formulation we cite is that of Haussmann. Haussmann points out that an individual's capital enables that individual to earn interest. Uh, 
if the capital is invested in a machine, the sum of rentals that the machine earns over its lifetime is greater than the machine cost. So you buy a piece of machinery, could be something as simple as a, a lathe, or even simpler, a bicycle you can rent. Bicycle and you use the bicycle to have a messenger and so on. So you derive an income. Now there is the price of the bicycle on the one hand, and there is this net income. You put this bi use this bicycle not for f pleasure and not for just personal use, but you you apply it as a business equipment. Say you hire a messenger and then he would take messages from one part of the city to the other and then you would have an income but you also have an expense. You have to subtract the expense from the total income. There is a difference and you add it up over time and then say the bicycle is written off in 10 years and you add up for that, that 10 years the net income and of course you have to uh, be, if you want to be successful as a businessman you make sure that your total income is greater than the price of the bicycle because that was the purpose of buying the bicycle in the first place so there it is you have that uh, fact that you can buy a piece of equipment, use it in business and find that the total profit which you can reap over the years until you write off the capital equipment uh, because it's no longer uh, satisfactory for the business purpose and this total income has to be greater than the price of the equipment. So that's the kind of business fact which we have to accept. But on the other hand there is a question and this gives you the paradox. Because you could ask the question that those who want to earn income on an investment, why is it that they don't bid up the price to the level which will make it equal of the total uh, I, I hate to use the word profit because profit is very often used return. In, uh, hmm? return return yeah that's right so you are a, an entrepreneur you are shopping around for capital equipment which you want to use to earn the return now when you take all these entrepreneurs 
they are really competing for these capital goods which are for sale. And why is it that their bid does not push up the price which is at the level of this total returns for the useful life of the capital good? Why is it? Because normally this similar situations, this is what would have. Those who can use it and know how to use it would bid up to the, the price to the level which would be equal to the total return over the period of time. So I'm continuing uh, the quotation. Hausmann points out uh, that an individual's capital enables individual to earn interest. If the capital is invested in a machine, the sum of rentals, he uses the word rental, but we use the word return, but these are the same in this context. Uh, the sum of rentals of the machine earns over the lifetime is greater than the machine costs. Why? Now that is the question. Why? There is an apparent paradox here. Common observation, that is, tells us that the possession of a given stock of capital funds can, by judicious investments, say in a machine, yield a continuous flow of income, call it annual rentals, net of depreciation. This is important. The word depreciation means that you count it in from the beginning that the piece of machinery will wear off eventually so it's losing value and it has to be replaced so from day zero you factor that in and you have to add this sum which you prorated or some other rule say this piece of equipment losing of its value through wear and tear over a period of time and that has to be replaced because we want to count with constant values we put on equipment so that's why depreciation has to be taken into <coughs> account. So, <clears throat> common observation shows that possession of a given stock of capital funds can, by judicious investment, say in a machine, yield a continuous flow of income, annual rentals net of depreciation, okay, without impairing the ability of the capital funds to serve indefinitely as a source of income. The problem is 
how this can occur. Why is not the price of the machine paid by the capitalist at the time he invests in the money, bid up by the competition of others eagerly seeking to capture the net surprise, net surplus of rentals over costs, to the point where there is no such surplus is left. We are seeking then an explanation for an observed phenomenon which is in the absence of a theory of interest unable to be accounted for. Absent a theory of interest, no interest income ought, ought to be forthcoming except as a transient phenomenon. Competition ought to squeeze out any such surplus out of existence. To say that the capitalist invests his, his wealth is too simplistic. Now, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question which uh, Kirchner, uh, quoting Hausmann, is formulating that there is a paradox of interest. There should be really no interest because competition of the entrepreneurs or capitalists should squeeze such a surplus income out of existence. And the question is why? And now here's my answer. The whole description of what is happening by uh, Hausmann or Kirchner, <laughs> whoever you wish to name, is, is too simplistic. Because to say that the capitalist invests his funds to buy a piece of equipment is too wide. It does not cover the possibilities in a way which are, should be really kept distinct. And in particular, you have to bring in the idea of exchanging wealth for income or uh, to understand what happens here. Because there is such an exchange of wealth and income involved. And if you miss that, then you've missed the whole problem. You won't be able to solve it because your interpretation cannot be correct. <laughs> so here is actually what happens. The capitalist gives up wealth to an entrepreneur. Now we have to distinguish. Capitalist is not the same as an entrepreneur. In exchange for the latter's commitment to pay him an interest income at a fixed rate. So I repeat that. The capitalist gives up wealth to an entrepreneur in exchange for the latter's commitment to pay him 
an interest income at a fixed rate. So unless we split up this simple transaction into two parts, bringing in a new uh, protagonist, a new player, the entrepreneur, we won't be able to understand uh, really the problem of interest. <laughs> now, the entrepreneur is the one who converts the sum of money by choosing a capital good, piece of equipment. But it could be an apple tree too, but you know, <laughs> uh, let's just talk about this in industrial example, buying a, a piece of machinery, sewing machine, bicycle, whatever, where you put this into production process and derive a return from it. So, the entrepreneur convert, converts the wealth into capital goods, such as sewing machine or fruit tree, and there will have to be a third person. And this is the manager uh, who will be in charge of the capital goods and just manage the whole enterprise. So we just have to break it up. It's not a lender and a borrower, and then somehow out of the blue you get this interest or surplus, and, but you have to bring in, even if the persons involved are not different or the same, because there are these three persons whose presence is necessary for this miracle to take place. So there is the capitalist who comes up with the money, there is the entrepreneur who picks the piece of equipment which is going to be used in production, and then a manager who will have the immediate context, the know-how, how to use this machinery and make it productive. The objection may be that uh, it's not necessary to hire a manager because you are the entrepreneur, you just appoint yourself to be the manager and then uh, that's where the trouble starts, because if you do that, well, even one person can do the job of the three. So the one person can be the capitalist and the entrepreneur and the manager at the same time. It does happen, yes, not always, but it does happen. The point uh, I'm trying to make is that if you ignore the roles. These are not necessarily persons, but these are roles. Capitalist, entrepreneur, and manager. If you ignore these basic roles in the production process, then you won't be able to explain 
the inches because there's compensation for each of these. And there you have to be very careful in determining what this compensation is for. And there, if they are overlapping uh, overlapping actions, then you have to take this into account. So what follows from this, from the remark which I added, in other words, that regardless how the division of labor about these three guys, their roles cannot be ignored, because then you will be completely lost. So let's uh, consider that this is the production process and these three roles have to dist be distinguished and therefore we uh, just have to divide the net return and we have to share it out for the three roles. Could be three different persons, but could uh, overlap. So that means that we need three accounts. The net income from the operation now has to be subdivided, and this will be done that we just set up an income here, there, and there. The compensation for the capitalist is the fixed income. And this is uh, what you could consider the interest. That's what the capitalist gets. And he doesn't have to worry about the nitty gritty of uh, production process or management problems or what have you. He is guaranteed a fixed income. That's what the capitalist gets. Now what about the entrepreneur? Now, let's go to the manager, manager first. The manager gets a fixed salary, a compensation. Um, well, actually, actually it's f fixed in a different sense. It's, uh, he's on a, under a contract, and of course the terms of the contract are variable, and it could be renewed, uh, but subject to various changes. So the manager is getting a, a salary, shall we say, okay? And whatever returns, whatever is left out of the, total return after you pay these two guys, the capitalist gets his interest and the manager gets his uh, compensation, salary, is the pure entrepreneurial profit which goes to the entrepreneur. And this is something which uh, they would agree to quite readily, you don't have to convince them. Uh, but uh, this is a very natural thing for them to do. 
But it also reveals that investing implicitly involves an exchange of wealth for income, and that's between the capitalist and the entrepreneur. That's very important. Otherwise, it's hidden, and don't even think of there's any relevance, but there is. So that's part of investing, the uh, exchange of wealth for income. Okay? The capitalist gives up some sum of money, that's wealth, but he gets the interest, which is the income. That's straightforward. And uh, you can look at it from the point of view of the entrepreneur. He is giving up income in exchange for wealth. Now, if the entrepreneurs were not prepared to offer the capitalist an income in exchange for the wealth, wealth which he transfers at a positive interest, then the latter, that is the capitalist, would simply withdraw his offer and say, forget it, I'm not going to uh, give you that wealth for zero interest. I just want my share, and that's the interest, and that has to be positive, and it has to be fixed, and if we agree on that, then we have come to terms, and we can go ahead. But this is, if you don't, well, I have a problem, namely converting wealth into income, but if the worst comes to worst, I just, you know, get a chunk of gold and started cutting up pieces and do the conversion the other way, which we called uh, 